We've, uh, we've only got three weeks left of this series in Mark's Gospel, and almost all of the events and all of the incidents that we're going to be looking at during June take place in the final week of Jesus' life. And what we've been doing here on Sunday mornings is slightly unconventional, because rather than focus on one incident per week, which is sort of the traditional approach, we have attempted to look at quite a few And so this morning we've got nine to consider, uh, which is really actually a bit mad. But anyway, if if you do have a copy of God's Word, could I encourage you to open it again at Mark chapter 11, just so that you can see the text as we work our way through it. And we find there that Jesus curses a fig tree and he dramatically clears the temple. And you'll notice, as we were reading it, that Mark actually weaves those two incidents together. And that's very intentional. Because on its own, the fig tree episode makes little or no sense. I mean, why would you curse a fig tree for lack of fruit? Even though, as it says in verse 13, it wasn't the season for fig trees to bear fruit. Now, we are told that Jesus was hungry. But there's got to be more to it than that. And so for the majority of biblical commentators, the fig tree incident is really an acted out parable relating to what happened at the temple. Israel has become fruitless. Even the place of worship, the temple, the place of sacrifice, the house of prayer has been turned into a corrupt environment. True worship has all but disappeared. A religion without substance has become the norm. And so Jesus, in a spectacular but deeply symbolic moment, stops the entire shambles. And he visualizes the judgment of God as he sends tables and benches flying. A new day is dawning. A new way of approaching God is on the horizon. The need for all of this Not only the need for all of this, but the abuse of all of this is about to be over. You see, and we're back to verse 13. Whenever Jesus finds a religion that's leaves and no fruit, there's a problem. Fruitless Christian living was and still is a real issue. And so in verses 22 to 26, Jesus actually clarifies what's important, what's necessary, what in fact is essential for an alternative approach to life. An alternative approach to the Christian life. An alternative fruitful way of living. And so he says this, have faith in God. But what I want you to notice is the sheer extent and scope of the faith that Jesus goes on to describe because you'll see that it's a faith that does not limit God it's a faith that believes mountains can be shifted now for me whenever I read this I see real parallels uh, here to the camel through the eye of the needle comment that we heard last week from Mark 10 Because you remember that the disciples effectively pointed out that camels don't go through the eye of needles. That's humanly impossible. And how did Jesus respond? He said, yes, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. 
See, relocating Donard or Binion or Mont Blanc or K2 is humanly impossible. But what Jesus invites us to do, what Jesus encourages us to do and urges us to do is to have faith which believes that God can radically alter any landscape. Whether that's the morns in Newcastle or the panorama of your life, God can change it. And it's not about me working up enough faith. It's not about me beating myself up because I lack faith. And how many of us do that time and time again? We give ourselves such a hard time because of our lack of faith. The critical dimension to the comment of Jesus in verse 22 is the importance of having faith where? In God. It's always the object of our faith. It's where we place our faith that matters. And so I place my faith this morning in a God, in the God of what? Of the impossible. And I don't know if you're here this morning or how many of us are here this morning and we've got some impossible mountains that need to be shifted. Do we have the faith to believe that God can radically alter the landscape of our lives? And Jesus then goes on to refer to two key aspects of faith in God. And here they are. Believing prayer and a forgiving spirit. Now take a look with me at verse 24. Because taken on its own, this verse has been used and abused. It says, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. This is not an open-ended invitation to get what you want, provided you exercise mind over matter. Nor is it a free-for-all license to name it and claim it. Jesus here is speaking to disciples. Disciples who would have heard, who would have known the rest of or a lot of his teaching on prayer. This is not an isolated teaching slot. This is not all there is to know about prayer. Jesus said so much more about this gift. So, for example, he said, you need to recognize, you need to acknowledge, you need to accept that ultimately when you pray, you're praying that God's will would be done. That's Matthew 6. Jesus also taught that you need to remain in Jesus as you pray. You need to pray in the name of Jesus. You need to desire the glory of God when you pray. In other words, prayer never is or never can be about you. It's not about what I want. Prayer is bigger than that. It's deeper than that. It's broader than that. And so when we come to present our requests to God, which we are told to do, it's not that we're not told to ask. But whatever we bring our request to God, which is a privilege, which is a joy, which is a source of hope, we should always frame our prayers in the context of three provisions. The will of God, the name of Jesus, And the glory of God. And so whenever our prayer requests, whenever our petitions echo those provisions, then we can and we should engage in believing prayer. Because that is the first key aspect of faith in God. The prayers we prayed earlier for those kids. We prayed those asking for God's, is it God's will for kids to suffer? We prayed those prayers, I hope, in the name of Jesus. If those kids do get rescued, get saved, isn't that going to bring glory to God? Therefore, we were praying, believing prayer this morning. Because we'd framed them, or at least I hope we framed them, 
within that context. The second key aspect of fruitful faith in God is a forgiving spirit. Look at verse 25. And this is a massive challenge. And this may get personal for some people here this morning. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, now there's no gaps there. There's no loopholes. It's if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. So that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. And the model prayer, we call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's not really the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer that the Lord gave to his disciples. It says this, our Father in heaven, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. As we forgive those who sin against us. And after Jesus gives the disciples this model prayer, what does he say at the end? For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is hard teaching from the lips of Jesus. The teaching of Scripture on this subject, I want to suggest to you, is actually intensely explicit. Is it easy? Absolutely not. But it's incredibly freeing. Because when you withhold forgiveness, you constantly struggle and battle with negative issues and emotions such as bitterness, anger, and a desire for revenge. Issues that unless they are addressed will consume you from the inside and will damage your heart. Forgiveness is never easy. But it is always life-restoring. Is forgiveness fair? No. But as C.S. Lewis once wrote, forgiveness goes beyond human fairness. Was it fair that Jesus was beaten? Was it fair that Jesus was abused and mocked and spat upon and nailed to a tree? Of course it wasn't fair. But how did Jesus respond? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And so, Christian forgiveness is not an issue of fairness. And before we move on to our next incident, let me ask you a question. How fruitful is your Christian faith at the moment? If you were to put it in a scale of 1 to 10. And as you consider your response, allow those two indicators to determine your score. As you look into your life, is there existence and the reality of believing prayer? And what about the importance of a forgiving spirit? Is there someone here, outside of here, that you've never forgiven? Having effectively wrecked an area of the temple, it's no wonder the, uh, the religious establishment are on his case. And so in verse 28, they come to challenge the authority of Jesus. Have a look at it. Here's what they say. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? And as usual, what does Jesus do? He answers a question with another question. And he says, John's baptism, was it from heaven 
or was it from men? And in one brilliant moment and with one fantastic question, Jesus actually backs these chief priests, these teachers of the law and elders into a corner because no matter what answer they give to that question, they're beat. And so the best that they can come up with is a resounding, we don't know. And then I love how Jesus responds. Verse 33, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm going to do these things. So there. I've added the last two words, by the way. And in a sense, that's the end of the conversation. The discussion is over. So Jesus has not only sent their tables and benches spinning, he's also sent their heads spinning. Because you see, it's always dangerous to play mind games with Jesus, and yet we do it. And Jesus then tells a parable, and it's one of the most direct and self-explanatory mini-dramas and picture language that Jesus ever told. Mainly because those who heard it knew what was going on with this particular parable. And the reason they knew what was going on with this particular parable was because the imagery was so familiar. Back in Isaiah 5 is a song, and these people would have all known this song. But it's called the Song of the Vineyard. It's not a particularly happy song because it records what happens when people, people who God has invested in, people who God cared for, it actually records what happens when people who God has invested in and God cared for when they yield bad fruit. Whenever people become fruitless. It's a tragic song. It's a song about judgment. And the people listening to Jesus now telling this parable would have been familiar with the Isaiah lyrics. And so Jesus takes the story of that song and he tells it slightly differently. God is still the vineyard owner in the parable. The people of Israel are still the vineyard. And in the parable, the owner sends servants, lots of them, And he sends them to check and to monitor the fruit production in the vineyard. But they keep mistreating the servants, dismissing them, rejecting them, ignoring them, even killing them. And as people would have listened to this parable, they would have been making the connections. Because these servants represented the numerous Old Testament prophets that God sent to speak into the lives of the Israelites and into the lives of the nation of Israel. And then Jesus injects a slight twist. Because Jesus says in the parable, the owner God has one remaining and it's an incredibly risky option left at his disposal. He's going to send his son. The son, it says in verse 6 there of chapter 12, the son whom he loved. And for Mark's readers, and for us as we read this parable, we know the exact identity of that son. And the reason we know the exact identity of that son is because of the baptism incident and the transfiguration incident. Because the voice from heaven of both of those incidents says, this is my son whom I love. And so the tenants who are the religious leaders, they don't care that the son has been sent. And so they kill him as well. And the parable finishes. It's pure tragedy. There's no happy ending. And then it's time for another question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? And there's only one obvious and understandable answer. The owner is coming after the tenants. Judgment is heading in their direction. 
And Jesus then finishes with a quote from Psalm 118. And the religious leaders are again left with their heads spinning. Because they know, as it says in verse 12, that the parable Jesus has just told is directed at them. It's actually about them. And for the time being, as we read, they can do nothing. And so they walk away. See, Jesus had this incredible ability to tell stories that left people reeling. An incredible ability to tell stories that actually provoked people. That taught so much. And incidentally, during July and August, we're going to do a Sunday evening series based on the parables of Jesus called Tales of the Unexpected. And in the next incident, an unlikely combination then turns up. A group of Pharisees and Herodians who have very little in common. The only thing they had in common was a real desire to get rid of Jesus. But before they ask a question, another question. And one of the things I want you to hear this morning are the number of questions that Jesus gets asked. But before they ask the question, they identify three positives in Jesus. Now I know, please hear me in this, I know there is a bit of tongue in cheek here in what they say. But I still want to affirm what they say. Teacher, this is verse 14. Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Three things. Integrity, character, truth. Integrity, character, truth. How how many of you watched the the excruciating and toe-curling interviews on The Apprentice this week? Okay, lots of you did. Do you know they were painful to watch at times? But the issues at stake were these. The issues at stake in so much of society are these. Who are you really? Beyond your written CV, what do others say about you? What do I see in you? What do I discover about you whenever I put you under pressure? And some of the would-be apprentices were left wanting on Wednesday night. They were found out. Their integrity, their character, and their truthfulness were seriously undermined. You see, these issues are at the heart of so many issues. MPs, expenses. It's all about this. So much of what we read, so much of what we see around us today connects to these. There is a real lack of integrity. There is a crisis of character. There is an abandonment of truth. And Jesus, even to his critics, was a man who was recognized as possessing these three life-enhancing qualities. And I suppose the question I just want to ask us this morning is, who are we? Who are we behind the mask? Who are we when nobody else is looking? Are we people of integrity, people of character, and people of truth? How would or how do others describe us? And the question that Jesus was asked was related to taxes. Now I'm not going to deal with the question specifically because as Jesus himself says, why are you trying to trap me? Do you know the question you've just asked is really a red herring. But what I, want to do, what I want to highlight is the initial response of Jesus to their question. Look at verse 15. But Jesus knew their what? Their hypocrisy. 
Do you know, almost at the other end of the spectrum from a person of integrity and character and truth is a person with hypocrisy. A person who appears to be something they're not. Lots of leaves, very little fruit. And Jesus sensed and he saw hypocrisy a mile off. And he identified it and he named it. And in a very real way, Jesus is still doing that. Into our lives at times, whenever we pretend to be something we're not, whenever we have those double standards, whenever we don't quite walk it out in terms of what we say and what we speak. And the Pharisees and the Herodians again are left with their heads spinning. And so it's time for another group to show up and ask a question. And this time it's the Sadducees. And at one level what they ask is strange because it's related to the status of marriage at the future resurrection. And the reason it's a weird question for them to ask is because as a group they didn't actually believe in the resurrection. It was far too dangerous an idea. And so their question lacked sincerity. But in how Jesus replies, he does say two things. One, marriage as we understand it or currently understand it is over at the end of this age. Verse 25. And secondly, there is life after death, which would have come as a real shock to these guys. And the first issue, well, that's interesting, but the second issue or the second discovery that death is not the end is fascinating. And what would have happened? Guys with heads spinning. And one of the teachers of the law, he's so impressed by Jesus that he brings, what? It's another question. This is getting ridiculous. Just question after question after question. And so he steps up and he says, Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And as we all know, the scribes had determined that good Jews were obligated to obey over 600 of these things. And so to ask which is the key one was a fair question. And so Jesus doesn't hesitate in his response. He says, the key one is this, love God. Love the Lord your God. That's got to be your first priority. But how are you to do that? And as we all know, he goes on to say, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. In other words, you've got to love him totally. With every fiber, every aspect of your being, love God absolutely. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't stop there. The lawyer hadn't asked him for a second choice. But Jesus gives it to him anyway. Because as far as Jesus was concerned, the second commandment is so integral, so fundamental to what he's about. And so he says, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment. Notice, there is no commandment, not commandments. There is no commandment greater than these. And what Jesus appears to do is he fuses these two commandments together. It's about loving God and your neighbor. Please don't claim to love God and yet not love your neighbor. It doesn't work like that. It can't work like that. You can't separate the two. It's not either or. It's both and. If you say you love God, you will love your neighbor. It's the way it has to be as far as Jesus is concerned. It's what he came to model. That, according to Jesus, is every human being's greatest responsibility and challenge. And how do we know it? Well, again, it's back to the fruit issue. By your fruit, we'll know. What do people see in our lives? Leaves or just, or is it fruit? And the lawyer is impressed with Jesus' response and so he adds an interesting dimension. He says, Jesus, to love is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And in some ways we can connect this back to what happened at the temple because Jesus' actions indicated that all the temple stood for, the daily, the weekly, the annual round of sacrifices and offerings, they were coming to an end. Jesus had come to enable people to love God and to love others in a new way. They didn't need this way. There was a new way now open to them that didn't involve ritual and routine. But it came via renewed hearts kingdom living and Christ following and the challenge for us this morning is wrapped up in this because as people live with us as people work with us as people spend time with us as people observe our lives which they do as they watch how we live what do they see do they see ritual and routine or do they see love do they detect in us a wholehearted love for God and a wholehearted love for our neighbour Or do they just see us as people who simply go through the motions of some religious system? That we just are in this for what we can get out of it in some ways. Or are we actually in this because of a passionate and an all-consuming love for God and a love for others? And Jesus, he's impressed at the lawyer's answer. And he offers this intriguing comment in verse 34. You're not far from the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom. In other words, you're on the right track. Everyone else has come to me with questions. And the reason they've come to me with questions is to try and trap me. And that's why I've sent them away with their heads spinning. But you have come with a genuine inquiry. And now... That you are armed with the discovery that it's all about love. Go and live it. Go and live it. You're not far from the kingdom. And how close to or how far are we from the kingdom of God this morning? It seems that our love for God and our love for neighbor provides the answer to that. It's not about the boxes we've ticked. It's about our love for God and our love for for one another determines how close or how far away we are and I love the final phrase of this incident no, verse 34 and from then on no one dared ask him any more questions <laughs> it's just brilliant because enough heads were spinning and in the next incident it's Jesus and we're nearly there in the next incident it's Jesus turned to ask a question and it's a question about the Christ the Messiah being the son of David as well as David's Lord as indicated in Psalm 110 now This is a tricky one to get our heads around. But what Jesus was effectively saying in this section is that he is the son of David. And you'll remember if you were here last week, that was exactly how blind Bartimaeus addressed him. You're the son of David. Yes. You've got it. Even though you had no physical sight, you had spiritual insight. But Jesus was also the Lord that David referred to. And although he in this moment did not explicitly come out and say, I am the Messiah... That was certainly the inference here. And it says the people loved listening to Jesus. But then what he does is he takes the opportunity to warn them about the teachers of the law. Because he says, listen, those guys, those teachers of the law, those ones that keep coming to me with all the questions, they do have influence. In fact, they've got massive influence. But they also have hypocrisy. And how is their hypocrisy revealed? It's revealed in four ways. It's revealed in their clothing. Their desire for the best seats in church and at social functions, their appalling treatment of widows and their wordy men and pressing prayers. Here are four potential areas of hypocrisy for all of us. 
our look, our sense of self-importance and our desire to impress, our attitude towards others, particularly the vulnerable, and our praying. Four potential areas of hypocrisy where we're good at play acting, which is what a hypocrite is. I could say so much more. Jesus doesn't pull any punches in where those things lead to. Verse 40, such men will be punished most severely. See, hypocrisy only ever leads in one direction. And the final incident this morning relates to another sensitive issue, our money, and how we give it, which we've done this morning. And Jesus sits, it says, and he watches as people give, which is an interesting concept in itself, because I suppose he still does. And Jesus sees how much each person gives. And he knows their circumstances. He knows whether they're wealthy or whether they've given out of their poverty. But it's one worshipper that catches the attention of Jesus. And Jesus recognizes a generous heart that afternoon. And so he calls his disciples over to him and he says, That poor widow, though she gave very little, it's only a fraction of a penny, it cost her everything. Whereas a whole bunch of others today threw in big donations which actually cost them next to nothing. Because amount is never the issue. It's the attitude that really matters. And one of the interesting aspects of this story, and a bit of a kick in the teeth of the whole prosperity gospel thing, is that Jesus seems to leave her in her poverty. Even though the poor widow, it says, has nothing left to live on, Jesus doesn't intervene. Why? Let me suggest you discuss that one around the dinner table. Nine incidents. Here are nine questions. And I've got hard copies of these this morning because everybody keeps giving me grief that I don't have. Why is fruitless religion such a problem? What mountain in your life requires believing prayer? Do you hold anything against anyone this morning? Why is forgiveness so difficult and so unfair? What mind games do we sometimes play with Jesus? How do you nurture integrity, character and truth and avoid hypocrisy? How has your wholehearted love for God and neighbour been expressed this week? How does our look, our desire to impress, our attitude to others and our praying risk hypocrisy? And why is giving such a reflection of the heart? If you want a hard copy, I can give you one if you want them emailed. Just do what you normally do. Let's sing, and then we're done. And then there's coffee and tea for everyone.